Today, folks, our guest is Joan Biskupic, who is the author of a tremendous new book called Nine Black Robes. And it traces something that is reshaping America at a very fundamental level in so many parts of our lives right now. And that is the Supreme Court supermajority and the dominance of the Supreme Court by Republicans and conservatives. And I'm so happy to have her with us today. There was also maintained what was called an enemies list. Democrats want Republicans dead. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody. The women with the least likelihood of getting pregnant are the ones most worried about having abortions. On January 6th of 2021, you had tens of thousands of people peacefully protesting. You're the president of the United States. You can declassify just by saying um, it's declassified. It's not a right-wing conspiracy theory. It's not QAnon. It's real. <laughs> I'm Rick Wilson, and this is The Enemies List. Joan, tell us about uh, Nine Black Robes. Tell us about what's happening on the court, um, both the things we're seeing and the things we're not seeing about how this conservative court is reshaping America. Sure. It's great to be with you, Rick. Uh, there's just so much happening up there. And I thought, you know, it was time for a group portrait, given how much the court had changed. I've been watching the Supreme Court since, you know, late 80s, early 90s. And we, for such a long time, had... Uh, a conservative dominance, a five-four split court, mm -hmm. but it was such mm -hmm. a different kind of conservative dominance. When you think of, you know, the people who were um, easily labeled uh, conservatives on the uh, right were Sandra Day O'Connor, uh, Anthony Kennedy. Uh, you know, way back mm -hmm. when, uh, for one brief couple of months, maybe David Souter fit into that. But you know, we've seen we've seen such a a, a transformation of of appointees from from the right and especially uh lock certainly sealed a different uh, approach on the supreme court with, with donald trump's three appointees so i thought it would be a good time to pull back and look at how we got this court and i have to tell you that when i uh signed the contract for this book in very early 2020 i thought i'd be looking at you know sort of to address part of your question <laughs> what was going on inside a little bit of the, you know, what was the Trump effect on these justices? I had no idea that we would be so close to the justices accepting a challenge to Roe v. Wade and then obviously following through with the five to four majority decision uh, in Dobbs last June 24th. So um, so this book culminates with that. But when I went back, Rick, to look at what I had written and how I had outlined everything, until the moment that they accepted Dobbs in May of 2021, I realized that I did have the scaffolding for where we are, even though I might not have acknowledged it. You know, I have been one of those people who keeps thinking the chief is going to pull out some sort of compromise at the middle. But that's those are the olden days. Right. You know, this is a different kind of court. So the book is about sort of how we got here. And actually, uh, even though Dobbs is just one case that I explore, it, it's about how we got to a point where we have a conservative supermajority and what the effect of that has been. Um, one thing I one other little aside I would mention is that I've long tracked uh, uh, the Federalist Society and 
Antonin Scalia was my second biographical book subject back in 2009. <laughs> and I remember him talking about how what the importance of the Federalist Society was when it was just being formed in the early 80s. And he talked about the comfort that like-minded people can give each other. And there are a couple great lines that I resurrected from my interviews with him back in the day that I think just so much uh, cast some sort of some understanding on where we are now when we have six justices on the right so that they they sort of um, embolden each other not to break away and to also, you know, keep moving forward on what they think should be uh, changes in the law and approach to the law. Well, that's an interesting uh, uh, second question is the, the, as you said, you know, the old conservative justices, um, mm -hmm. and I think to some degree, John Roberts still has a foot in this camp. There was this philosophy right. before the current court of restraint and care and moving very carefully and deliberately before making any sort of radical transformations uh, from the court. And now it seems that Roberts doesn't really have either the leadership or the moral position. I don't. I don't know what word I'm searching for. He doesn't seem yeah. able to influence the, especially the new members of the court, and certainly not Clarence Thomas. You know that's exactly right, Rick. That's that's very observant. You know when when Clarence Thomas went public uh, with some of his comments about distrust on the court back in May of. 2022, right after the leak of the Dobbs ruling. And he talked about distrust on, at the court and people looking over their shoulder. And he happened to mention what the court was like before 2005, mm -hmm. which is when John Roberts obviously became chief. And he said, you know, we, we trusted each other more then. And he commented on how he actually had good relations with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a liberal, mm -hmm. his ideological opposite. And he said, I always knew where she was. And I thought that was very revealing because I had known of Clarence Thomas's sense that the Chief Justice Roberts was just a little too cagey, that he just didn't, you know, he had, he resisted, he resisted John Roberts on his compromise positions, but I think he also resisted John Roberts's approach. And what's happened is that, you know, Clarence Thomas used to be fringe, mm -hmm. right? He used to mm -hmm. be off at the margins. And now he's in the vanguard. And I think that he also has inspired great loyalty and a following among uh, some of the other justices, you know, certainly uh, Amy Coney Barrett and Neil Gorsuch. And and I think it's it encouraged Samuel Alito also, like Thomas, even though they're both in their 70s and they they have more years ahead of them of them to feel a sense of urgency to get things done now with these other members. Right. I think there's always a sense I have lately of that they're trying to sprint to a finish line. I can't quite define what the finish line is in my head because, I mean, I, I feel like, and maybe this comes back to the sort of federal society screening process of today and how Leonard Leo and the FedSoc people have been searching for these Kavanaugh's and these Coney Barrett's for many, many years. Um, mm. but there's a sense, I think you're right. There's a sense that they are really trying to crash through the barriers on a lot of these big bills or a lot of these big cases rather, and, and, and get to some sort of establishment of precedent that, that is not going to be easily unwound in the country. It, is this, is part of this from that FedSoc world? Is it, have they, have they basically, I mean, FedSoc always struck me. People, people were always surprised how effective they were. And I kept telling them it's, it's not politics. It's a culture they've built. 
of these of these oh, of these jurists. You are you are so right. Uh, there's you know I've I I have been following them essentially. Well, I wasn't I wasn't in Washington when they started. You know, in eighty one eighty two. But I've certainly spent a lot of time talking to the founders and to you know tracking people who were at the very first meeting at Yale. You know that included people like Stephen That's Breyer, right. Antonin Scalia, Robert Bork. I mean, they and all all of the young people, you know, are still around. And then they cycled in and out of administrations to help uh, pick judges. Very committed. And they want other people who are committed. I remember at one point when Don McGahn, you know, Don McGahn has said so much about the role of uh, the Federal Society. And he stressed that, you know, we didn't outsource. We insourced. We are inside the castle because he, of right. course, was a, a a leader on campus when in uh, the Federal Society student chapter when he was at Widener, but and it, but he what he one thing he did say was he liked picking people from Fed Sock because he didn't want any you know so called Johnny come latelys he wanted people who were committed, and think of how Fed Sock has kind of transformed itself in terms of the money and the network. It started really as a debating society, sure. bringing bringing to the forefront really potent conservative ideas that its founders believed weren't getting the proper attention. And they, they were right. They did a, they did a fabulous job creating it and their timing was so good. But then over the years, it obviously became much more of a, uh, a, a player in terms of the corporate world. And Leonard Leo has been so effective, not just at the kind of networking and drawing people into the fold, but obviously the money raising. I mean, he he has been uh, one thing in the book. You'll see that uh, I, I had several interviews with him and I, I do describe mm -hmm. him as somebody who has certainly gotten the job done for for people who believe in uh, the kind of conservatism he he embraces. But uh, when he was a kid in high school, uh, his nickname was Moneybags because he was so good at fundraising <laughs> even in, in his high school in New Jersey. And he is he's been super effective and he's built uh, a terrific network that has made the Federal Society <laughs> such a different institution sure. than uh, just a debating society. But you're exactly right. And I don't think there's a uh, a Republican would-be judge in America who isn't part of the Federalist Society because he or she knows that that's the path in. Support for Rick Wilson's The Enemies List comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash Wilson. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Wilson. Odoo, modern management made simple. Uh, it, it is it is as, as central a gate for for conservative jurists as as going to uh, going to law school itself. There's nothing else. And and it, it became, as I said, this cultural thing. It's like, oh, he's one of us or she's one of us. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 right. and I have seen I have seen their effectiveness in terms of of in states that are doing judicial nomination processes in the legislatures. The, the Republicans don't even ask the question. It's like a Fed Sox. The, the, that, that's the Fed Sox person. OK, good. Fine. Done. And yeah. they, don't, they they stop thinking at that point. So, given that given that that Leonard Leo announced it's on a one point six billion dollar 
uh, endowment from a from a major conservative donor. You know, he's going to continue to be active. He's going to continue to be to be powerful. And and like most things with with my fellow uh, or my former party, a lot of the accusations they make are projections. So they always say, oh, the liberals pick all their judges in advance 50 years ahead of time. It's a plan. It's a scheme. But this really is uh, the FedSoc and, and this conservative judicial movement really has been in play for 50 plus years. Well, yes. I mean, especially since, you know, you trace, uh, you know, you trace the roots of the modern conservative movement. You can easily go back that far. But the idea of the, of the liberals always knowing the liberals just tend to be a lot messier. Just think of how it took Bill Clinton three months to choose <laughs> Ruth Bader Ginsburg and how many people he went mm -hmm. through. He went through Mario yep. Cuomo. He went to, you know, he just, it, 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 Stephen Breyer was in the running at that point too. You know, he just went through so many. And uh, this time around uh, when Joe Biden selected Ketanji Brown Jackson, there was an element of beta come play there, but uh, it wasn't so, so, okay. They've, they were able to be efficient this time, but uh, the Democrats have not been super efficient on, on their choices, in part because it's 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 got a lot of different interests. One thing that has happened, Rick, as I've gone back and done these books, is I get to go, I get to kind of see what I missed when, as a daily reporter when I was covering a nomination. Sure. And I would say the nominations in the, you know, in the 90s are a perfect example. And then into the 2000s, you know, I would be telling, getting information from the White House in one regard about who was truly in the running and who was up, who was down and who was, who was influential. And, you know, into the early 2000s, obviously, you know, I had to uh, deconstruct a lot when I did the book on the chief. Uh, and his nomination from 2005, mm. you know, you learn, you learn who had the inside track and, and how they did now with, uh, let's just take, you know, since I earlier referred to Don McGahn, Don McGahn and Brad Kavanaugh, that was, that was more obvious by the time we got 2018, how much he had the inside track. Although, you know, there were certainly were some religious conservatives who even back in 2018 would have preferred, uh, Amy Coney Barrett, but, um, uh, she was in the back pocket ready mm -hmm. for 2020. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things that uh, always struck me about Kavanaugh was, you know, I didn't know him personally that I met him a couple times mm -hmm. over the years, but he was always sort of like an administrative guy. He was he never struck me as somebody who you'd go, that's a guy who's got a deep judicial philosophy. He was just one of these operator type guys that, you know, the party produces thousands of them every, every cycle. The McGann Kavanaugh relationship obviously was what was what brought it home. But I mean, he really seemed to be, in terms of temperament and and accomplishment, one of the weakest nominees in a very long time. Well, think of who he attached himself to early on. You know, he first of all, he, you know, he did go to an Ivy League school. He, mm -hmm. you know, he, he went to Yale. He did um he did get man get a clerkship with Kaczynski. Alex yes. Kaczynski on the ninth, who was a feeder judge. To no Kennedy. question. Yep. He did. He did get into the SG's office. He then was one of the right hand workers to Ken Starr. And so he got, um, you know, I remember during one of his confirmation hearings for the D.C. Circuit, I think it was Senator Schumer who said, you know, you've been at the scene of every all these <laughs> anti-democratic things. But he, he was yeah. he was he and then. And George W. Bush took uh, really liked him. And then, as you probably know, Brett Kavanaugh happened to marry um, Ashley mm -hmm. was the uh, 
secretary to, to President George W. Bush. So, you know, I think uh, George W. Bush certainly took him under his wing. Sure. And he, when he was um, his investiture, he had an, uh, a swearing in ceremony in the Rose Garden for a lower for his lower court judgeship that uh, uh, President Bush you know, allowed him to have in part because this was a, this was a special person in in his mind. And uh, and you remember, I'm sure, vividly back in uh, the W. Bush administration when he was there were so many fights over who would get on out of all oh those appointees uh, that, that he made that were trouble. The, Harriet the, the whole Miguel Estrada, oh, Miguel Estrada, Harriet Myers. <laughs> yeah. And and but uh, Brett Kavanaugh was one that was who was opposed by Democrats. But President Bush was not going to abandon right. him. So he uh, he made plenty of friends in high places, the right friends in high places. Yeah. But like I said, it struck me that his temperament, even in, look, I, we've all seen plenty of confirmations where the hardball gets rolled out and, and, and people mm -hmm. have to take some really, really fairly ugly personal blows in these confirmation hearings yeah. on either side of the, of, of the fence. And, mm -hmm. and it just mm -hmm. struck me how brittle he seemed in those, in those hearings and how, how, I mean, is, is he playing a role right now? It, it, could he survive in the court if it wasn't this, this incredibly, you know, large majority on the Republican side? Well, I think so many justices over time have survived irrespective of how they got there and what mm. their, you know, how, you know, depending on how you would describe their approach to the law and all sorts of different criteria. So I don't, I don't, think of him that way. I do want to just mention what you, seems to have struck you so much from the confirmation hearing when he when he cracked, essentially, right. under that pressure and the kinds of things he said about um, what he believed were the roots of uh, Christine Blasey Ford's uh, claims against him, that they were, you know, this vast Democratic conspiracy coming home to roost against him. And that was exactly what Justice John Paul Stevens spoke out against and felt that that revealed, as you say, a temperament that um, that wasn't judicious. And that and he, and Justice Stevens even made a point of saying, you know, Clarence Thomas was under a lot of pressure, obviously, back in 1991 with the Anita Hill right. accusations. And, you know, he said many things, the high tech lynching, but he did not lash out at the other party in, in that way. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at as a listener to this podcast, you know democracy is in danger in America and beyond. This titanic challenge requires a powerful response, and that's why Resolute Square was founded. The Enemies List is part of the Resolute Square family. We're a pro-democracy network. The Enemies List is just one part of Resolute Square's pro-democracy content and coverage. Our members get particularly exciting benefits. Exclusive live roundtable discussions with me, Reed Galen, Stuart Stevens, and Joe Trippi, in those discussions, you can ask us questions directly, as if you are in the room at a campaign strategy session. In these sessions, we'll give folks answers on how to fight back against the crazy, how to push back against the MAGA media, and how to communicate effectively in the battle for our democracy. 
We're building a new arsenal for democracy, and we could use your support. Head over to ResoluteSquare.com slash enemies to let the world know where you stand. One of the questions that everyone's asking, everyone's you know focused on right now, is this long-term relationship that Clarence Thomas has had with a very wealthy donor uh, and supporter. Yeah. And look, one of the things in the country that I've, I've viewed in the last, uh, I don't know, 20 years, this decline of confidence and faith in public institutions and, and, and leadership. How did the guy just keep doing this and not report it? What was his thought process to, in your mind of, of why he kept coming back to the well on, on these lavish vacations and these trips and this, and all these gifts. And he wasn't reporting it. Cause I, I noticed the other day, like Gorsuch is like, I received a fishing rod from someone as a gift and I received, you know, a scarf and, and Clarence Thomas just sort of let, let all of it go. I, what, what's your, what's your thinking on that? Because it's just such a, it's such a weird and, and terrible, I think, moment for the court. Well, you're referring to the uh, the recent ProPublica yes. report that showed that he had taken these lavish trips uh, financed by Harlan Crow, the you know mega donor to all sorts of conservative causes, and you know going to New Zealand, Indonesia, you know across the globe on uh, super yacht and private jet, and he he put out a statement saying that uh, he was trying to follow the rules and that he had talked to his colleagues who said, oh, you don't have to report those things because they're they're private hospitality uh, and that uh, Harlan Crow doesn't have cases right there before the Supreme Court. Now, Harlan Crow has put a lot of money toward reshaping the judiciary in various ways, but I guess in specific instances, he was not a, a, a petitioner or respondent in a case. But uh, it, it seems to me that uh, the justices should err on the side of disclosure. They should err on the side of giving more information not being even more secretive than they are. But he did not say in the statement that he put out last Friday who exactly he talked to. Right. Uh, was it the chief? Was it just Justice Scalia? Was it just who Who was it exactly? And uh, I think that there, you use Justice Gorsuch as an example of someone who had been revealing. I think there things are very inconsistent up there in, in terms of what people do reveal and don't reveal. And there's no check. There is no check on it. There's no way for us to know what exactly is happening, because if they don't report it, then you have to rely on, as Publica right. did, you know, getting someone from the yacht, getting a chef to, mm -hmm. to squeal, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, yeah, I, th I think that it, uh, again, it's uh, this this crisis in America of faith and belief in really important institutions and the leaders of those institutions is something that I, I would have hoped Clarence Thomas would have said, you know, maybe I should not do this, or maybe I should be more transparent about it. But I think, I mean, look, uh, obviously, we all have a blind spot for the for the people we love in our lives. Uh, I think he probably did more damage by basically recusing himself on a case, or not recusing himself on a case in which his wife had a direct involvement. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Well, you you'll see in my book, I Clarence Thomas is actually quite beloved by the his colleagues up there. So he has this outside pressure on mm -hmm. him, but he, he's they've basically taken a hands-off approach saying, well, you know, Cl Clarence isn't going to uh, recuse himself on, you know, fallout from the 2020 election, even though they might be suspicious of what Ginny did. They, they sort of give him a pass. And 
you know, I know from my reporting that they have been working behind the scenes on some sort of formal ethics code, but they are just so far from unanimous on that. I'm not even sure if they have a full majority for something. And they can't basically, they can have a 6-3 ruling or a 5-4 ruling on a case, but they really can't have a 5-4 policy on ethics because, you know, like four of them are going to say, hey, we're not doing that. So uh, it, it's brought a, a a harsher spotlight to the court at a time when public confidence is so slipping at the court. But I don't know whether any of his colleagues would actually put pressure on him to do anything different. You probably know that uh, many members of Congress have been sending letters to the chief justice, yes, John yes. Roberts, saying, do something about this, do something about this. But the chief really isn't in a position to do something about it. In fact, it goes to your one of your earlier questions about his own leadership and moral authority. Um, that has been lacking on cases. And I think that on some of these off bench issues, it's also lacking. Well, and that, that, that's my next question for you is, so obviously the Dobbs decision, um, was a enormously consequential, uh, moment for the court and for the, and for the country. It was an enormously consequential, um, I, I think, I think the dog caught the car in a lot of ways on that issue with conservatives. Um, cause the political blowback is just now starting to really filter through the system. And it's been pretty catastrophic for the conservative side of the equation, um, in terms of the political outcomes. Um, what cases do you see coming down the line with this court that are going to be in that, maybe, maybe nothing's as consequential as Dobbs was, uh, and the overturning of Roe. What do you see coming down the line that are going to be like big marquee cases that where the, this court is going to leave a, uh, have another major impact on the country? Uh, two things. First of all, you're absolutely right that I think that the Dobbs ruling reversing nearly a half century of abortion rights, uh, going back to Roe v. Wade in 1973, it is stands alone, uh, a very defining case for this time. Uh, but that said, uh, there will be other instances where they'll be rolling back more precedent, just because, as I said, there's a sense of urgency up there. And one area where I think our listeners will uh, could see it uh, by June is in uh, racial affirmative action. We've got two cases up there, one from Harvard, one from the University of North Carolina, where what's at issue is, you know, can universities uh, look at the race of its applicants to try to build a more diverse student body? And obviously Harvard has done that in plenty of state schools and many, many right, schools do course. that because, you know, a lot of these schools could take everyone on you know, they would have uh, endless applicants with top grades. You know, some of these schools, they just have, you know, so many applicants who are, uh, you know, who have 4.0s and who, you know, scored super high uh, on, on uh, admissions, you know, SAT and ACT kinds of tests. But, uh, but they want something more. They want difference in extracurriculars. They want differences in life experience. And one thing they have looked at is obviously uh, race. And the question is, can can schools continue to take race into account without quotas? Because the the milestone ruling in this area is the Bakke mm -hmm. decision from 1978, in which the justices ruled by a narrow 5-4 vote that uh, schools could take race into account, but that they couldn't, they, the quotas were banned. Right, um, right. So, and Justice Lewis Powell, uh, a Republican appointee, uh, was the key vote there. And he wrote the key decision that has endured. And the question is, will that decision endure through uh, this June? I, I think I think that that is going to be something that that is 
very high on the conservative culture war checklist uh, in the in the months and weeks to come. Yeah. Well, Joan Biscupic, thank you so very much. I know you have to hop, but it has been a delight talking to you today. Thank you so much for coming on the enemies list. I really appreciate your insights on this. And tell us where people can find you on social media. Okay, sure. I uh, I am fairly lame on social media. <laughs> I will tell people right away. So in in lieu of that, go buy the book. Buy the book. But you can also find me at. Um, uh, I do have a. I, I am on Twitter in, inconsistently, but I try. I'm trying because everybody's on it. Uh, at Joan Biskupic, uh, uh At Joan, you know my Twitter at Joan Biskupic. Joan Biskupic. I. Yes, I'm the only one who has the name Joan Biskupic in America. And so it will not be hard for people to find the book or to find me on social media or to find me at CNN.com. So well, folks, they can find me everywhere. <laughs> I, I strongly encourage you to get the book. It is a terrific insight into where this court is, uh, has been, and is going to be in the coming years because the conservative court is going to be with us for quite some time. Thanks, Rick. Thank you, Joan. Have a great day. Thanks again for coming on. This week's enemies list is Judge Matthew Kaczmarek. Now, you've all heard of Judge Matthew Kaczmarek because he is the judge in Texas who's banned Mithopristone, a drug that is safe and reliable, not only for as part of the morning after sequence, but more broadly so. He is using his power on the bench to make medical and scientific decisions. Now, the last time I checked, and I haven't, I've only scanned his, his resume, I missed the part where he was either a medical doctor, a pharmaceutical researcher, a chemist, a gynecologist, a scientist, of any description whatsoever. And I found this to be an interesting contrast because for years, and I mean, no, no, scrap that, for decades, Republicans said, we just want judges who aren't going to legislate from the bench. What the fuck do you think Kazmierich is doing right now? I don't care what your view on abortion is. He is legislating from the bench. He did not take this case in any way as a legal matter. He took it as a political matter. And he issued what is essentially a legislative ruling from the bench. This is crazy town. And it's it's crazy town, not because of this particular subject matter, but because of what it will unleash in the judiciary, of what it will unleash in the legal process. This is madness. And for people who can't see it, for people who's who are blinded by by getting the short term owning the libs win in the abortion wars, if you don't think that judges doing this from the bench is a bad thing, wait until liberal judges from the bench start ruling on things like guns, start banning things like guns, because the exact analogy that could be made here is a liberal judge could say, well, I know that guns aren't covered under this or that safety regulation in America, but I'm going to demand they all are from now on. Or any other matter of personal freedom or liberty or individual speech, individual behavior, free enterprise activities, this is insanity, okay? This is crazy town. The same people, again, who say over and over, oh, I don't want judges who legislate from the bench. I want people who interpret the law and the Constitution faithfully. You're full of shit. And Matthew Kaczmarek is now your problem. You're on the enemies list. Get your shit together. Thanks again for listening to the enemies list. 
you have any comments, questions, or if there's someone you'd like to hear on the podcast, hit me up on Twitter at the Rick Wilson. Thanks again for the wonderful support you've shown the pod. We're growing fast. It really helps if you will share this with your friends, your family, and anyone else who, like us, is trying to save democracy. While you're at it, if you could rate and review the podcast, I would be very much appreciative. I know this is the sort of thing you've heard a billion times. Please rate, review, like, blah, blah, blah. But you need to do it. It really does help us a lot. We are slaves to the algorithm, my friends. And if you do this, it will help get the pod out further. Anyway, thanks again for listening. I'll see you next time. And remember, whatever you do, stay off the list. Oh,